Thank you very much, Chancellor, for that uh, characteristically uh, eloquent and kind introduction. Um, the thing about that list, of course, is you're only on it for one year, and then you cease to be influential evermore. Um, it's a huge pleasure to be here in this rather imposing venue, which I'm told is mainly used for lecturing staff officers. So I feel I should be sort of barking historic commands at you in the fashion of General de Gaulle, but I'll try to refrain. Um, our subject is what Europe for our grandchildren, which raises the delicate question of how old we are. <laughs> that is to say, when we're talking about, because uh, some of us, many of us, will have grandchildren, some of us will have some time to go. I've quite arbitrarily decided to talk about somewhere around 2030, 2040. In 2030, as you know, the Church of the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona started in 1882 is due to be finished. So I think that's a good, good uh, target to set our sights on. Um, uh, the quick and obvious historian's caveat, um, we have no idea what is going to happen tomorrow, let alone what's going to happen in 30 years' time. And one reason we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow is that sometimes it may even depend on what we do today. So, building on what the panel has started very impressively, I'm going to look briefly at where Europe is, identify a few key trends and challenges, and then address this question of what we might do to make the best possible Europe for our grandchildren. First of all, where we are. Painting with a very broad brush. If you attempted to draw a graph of European history over the last hundred years, I suspect you would come up with a line that looks something like the Nike sportswear logo. You know, the tick, the long tick, a, a rapid descent and then a long, slow rise. That is to say, starting from that fateful day in August 1914, when German soldiers in pickle harbors marched through the poppy fields of Flanders to meet graduates of this Ecole Militaire, Europe descended very rapidly through what Churchill called its second 30 years war, the European Civil War, to the depths of European barbarism, to the depths of war, dictatorship, genocide, terror. And then very slowly and somewhat discontinuously has pulled itself out and ascended. First, it has to be said, only in parts of Western Europe, then in Southern Europe, and after another great turning point, 1989, in Central and Eastern Europe, to heights never before achieved in Europe. Just to give you some sense of the contrast between the two halves of the 20th century. Mark Mazur has in his wonderful book, Dark Continent, the following estimate, that in the first half of the 20th century, Europe's 20th century, more than 60 million people died as a result of war and state-sponsored violence. In the second half 
of the 20th century, even including the wars in former Yugoslavia, less than one million people died. That gives you some sense of a contrast between the two halves. And what we have achieved, ladies and gentlemen, as we approach the 66th anniversary of VE Day, is something never achieved before in European history. Never before have the majority of European countries been more or less liberal democracies, some a bit more, some a bit less, no names, no pack drill, but more or less liberal democracies in the same economic, political, and security community. Never before have so many Europeans enjoyed so much prosperity, relative security, and above all, liberty. There are huge flaws still on this map of Europe. Maria Novak, the French scholar, estimates that some 80 million people in the European Union alone live in what may reasonably be called poverty. The treatment of some minorities such as the Roma is a scandal and a disgrace. In Belarus, just next door to the European Union, we have a dictatorship in some ways as bad as many in the Arab world. But for all its faults, to adapt Churchill's famous comment on democracy, this is the worst possible Europe apart from all the other Europes that have been tried from time to time. Or as another British Prime Minister said, adapting Harold Macmillan, Europeans have never had it so good. But none of this is irreversible. None of it is irreversible. If you look at the papers today, you will see that frontier controls are to be reintroduced in the Schengen area. So this great achievement of frontier, no frontier controls, is already being rolled back. As was mentioned earlier, European Monetary Union is by no figure of the imagination irreversible, nor is the European Union, nor is the achievement of peace. Indeed, all of this is now facing very serious challenges, as was already indicated in the panel. And let me just share with you what seem to me five key challenges and then suggest one or two things we can do about them. I mentioned the graph of Europe's 20th century, the Nike curve. But there is another graph we could draw on a wider canvas over a longer timeline that is the graph of Europe in the wider world over 500 years. And if you take that graph, it is, with some simplification, a 180-degree rotation of the first. That is to say, from roughly the 15th century, you have a long period of gradual ascent to the apogee around 1900, when Europe is the supreme repository of wealth, power, and modernity, and indeed rules directly or indirectly much of the world. But then quite a rapid descent thereafter. Now, we have to qualify this 
because how did the two graphs fit together? Well, answer, of course, there was this remarkable recovery. But what we are now understanding, I think, is that that curve is turning down again, at least in terms of Europe's relative power. Partly because of forces unleashed or at least catalyzed by the consequences of 1989. Forces unleashed in the acceleration and opening up of globalization. This is the relative weakening of the West in two important senses. One has already been mentioned, that is to say, the secular shift of relative power from west to east and to some extent from north to south. I talk of the renaissance of Asia to remind us, as Barbara did earlier today, that there was a time a few centuries ago where China and India were richer and more powerful and more modern than Europe, and they will be again, and maybe sooner than we think. The most alarming projection. Um, historians, as you know, don't know the future, but um, fortunately, economists do. <laughs> the trouble is that they each know a different future. Um, Robert Fogel, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, has a most alarming projection. He says that in 2040, China may have 40% of the world's GDP, the United States, 14%, Europe, 5%. Now, I see someone, no doubt an economist, shaking his head negatively, and I, I, absolutely many more realistic estimates uh, don't go any, anything like that far, but all of them certainly put China overtaking the United States in the period we're talking about, and all of them put the relative share of Europe's GDP as shrinking. But ladies and gentlemen, the second respect in which there is a relative weakening of the West is one we only just touched on before. All of us who grew up in the Cold War thought that there was not only a cultural and, and historical and philosophical unity called the West, but there was a geopolitical actor called the West. And the question when something happened was, what would the West do? That is to say, Western Europe and North America, from Plato to NATO. As we like to say then, at least in some American universities. What has happened since is what any historian would have predicted. Namely, that with the disappearance of the common enemy that held us together, that self-evident operational unity of North America and Western Europe has broken down. This was concealed under the presidency of Bill Clinton, Oxford alumnus, honorary European, and Madeleine Albright, who was, of course, a European because she was Czech. It emerged clearly in the presidency of George W. Bush, but that it was no accident is illustrated by the fact that the trend has got even stronger under the Obama administration, which by no means now looks automatically to Europe 
for its first partner on any issue, by no means at all. It's just as likely to look to India or to the relationship to China or to Brazil or to Indonesia. So that from the European point of view, that relative weakening of the West is a double challenge, both in global terms but also in relation to the United States. The second challenge I want to mention briefly is often described as Islam, I think it would be more accurate to say the presence of a large and growing number of Muslims in Europe. Now, at the cutting edge, this is, of course, the challenge of violent Islamist extremism. But the difference between our position and that of the United States is that for us, this is not an external issue. This is about the fabric of our own societies in which, for example, in the country in which we are at the moment, an estimated 10% of the population, plus minus, are Muslims uh, of migrant origin. And the reason for this, the reasons for this, are, of course, demography and geography. We have aging populations just across the Mediterranean. There's a whole slew of countries which have 50 to 60% of their populations under 30 years of age. That is where our immigrants are coming from, will come from, have to come from in large part, also to help paying our pensions, and nothing any immigration-limiting politician says is going to stop that happening in some measure, and in any case, many of the problems we face the problems of integration, are already to do not with immigrants, stricto sensu, but with the second and third generation, with the children and, yes, grandchildren of immigrants. What is more, and by the way, the projections in many West European countries are up at the 25% mark in, in the, the period I'm talking about. Um, what is more, these fellow Europeans of migrant origin will have a much closer relationship to their countries of origin than immigrants traditionally have, for example, in the United States or Australia. Not only because they're physically closer, but also because of cheap air travel, satellite television, mobile phones, the Internet. That is to say, we have tens of millions of Muslim fellow citizens who in some important sense live simultaneously in Morocco and in Spain, in Algeria and in France, in Turkey and in Germany. They have two homelands. And that is simply a fact that we have to acknowledge. The taxi driver waiting outside my home in Oxford, and maybe the Chancellor's too, very often his family will have come from Pakistan, and he's reading a newspaper called Jang which means war in Urdu, and it's an Urdu newspaper. He, too, is living mentally in, in two different homelands. The third challenge I want to mention is the socioeconomic challenge, which we started talking about. People often talk about a European social model. I'm not at all convinced that there is a singular European social model. There's actually great variety in what David Soskis Oxford scholar has called the European varieties of capitalism. But all of us 
share, as someone said, a similar approach, the state redistributes something in the order of 50% plus minus of GDP, and that money goes overwhelmingly to health, education, welfare, and social security. And that's the kind of society post-war European societies want to be. This model is exceptionally difficult to sustain over the coming years. As we have seen already, the burden of debt and deficits, which is becoming unsustainable in many European countries. Aging populations mean soaring pension bills. How are we going to pay those pensions? Those budgets are going through the roof. And last but not least, low cost, increasingly high scale competition from the Far East and the South. Faced with that, the old European social democratic model of the welfare state a la 1970s is unsustainable. Fourth challenge, uh, already mentioned by Brown Amwin, the Eurozone. The Eurozone is both the deepest step of integration ever attempted in the European Union and by far the riskiest. And the crisis we are in at the moment is to adapt Gabriel Garcia Marquez's chronicles of a crisis foretold. Because what has been happening is in essence what numerous people, including, I say with all due modesty myself, but also many economists, said would happen if you tried to shackle together a lot of very diverse economies with a one-size-fits-all interest rate and try to make a monetary union without an effective fiscal union and the political underpinnings for that. It was going to happen. It has now happened. It risks dividing Europe, even if the Eurozone survives in its present form, not just into two groups, the ins and outs, but into three, because the Eurozone itself will to some extent be split between the centre and the periphery who will be having very different experiences of monetary union. Now, you will have gathered I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to attempt an answer to this conundrum, but I am a Germanist. Not an economist, but a Germanist. And what I do want to say to you is that politically, the question of the Eurozone is a question of Germany. It stands or falls upon the German approach to Europe. And therefore, I want to come back later and talk a bit more about Germany, because this politically is the heart, the core of the Eurozone crisis. Last but not least, I want to put it to you that the crisis of the European project is, au fond, at the deepest level, a crisis of success, and that we are in Europe actually the victims of our own success. Let me explain. If you look at the way in which the pro-European argument is made across Europe in different European countries, at first glance it seems very, very different the way the argument is made in Britain or Greece or Poland. When you look at it, all these arguments have the same basic shape. And the shape is this. 
We were, in the not-so-distant past, in a bad place. We wish to get out of that bad place to a better one, and the name of the better one is Europe. Now, the bad places we're coming from are of very different kinds. For Germany, it was a memory of Nazism and the shame of the Second World War. For France, it was a humiliation of defeat and occupation. For Spain and Poland, it was the memory, respectively, of fascist and communist dictatorships. For Britain, it was, I think, above all, the experience of economic decline and loss of world power status. But in each case, the basic pattern of the pro-European argument is the same. You were in this bad place, you want to get to a better one, the better one is called Europe. So the problem comes when you're all in it. What do you do then? When you've arrived, traveling hopefully was great, but what do you do when you've arrived? And this is, I think, in some truly fundamental sense, the deepest problem of the European project at the moment. It is an amazing fact that a young Estonian, that is to say the citizen of a state which did not exist on the map of Europe just over 20 years ago, takes it for granted that on Friday morning he can decide to get in a plane and fly to Lisbon. He doesn't need a visa. He doesn't need to change his money because he's got the euro. Fly to Lisbon, meet a girl, fall in love, marry, settle down, get a job and make the rest of his life, and he's moving from one free country to the other in the same European Union. And I can tell you that all over Central and East Europe, people take this for granted, this absolutely extraordinary achievement of the European Union. The extent of forgetting, the speed of forgetting, is quite shocking. And this removes the most important single motor of the whole European project, which was personal memories of war, dictatorship, occupation, dictatorship. That is what drove the European project forward into the generation of Kohl and Mitterrand, you mentioned holding hand across the graves, in Eastern Europe into the generation of Václav Havel and Bronisław Geremek. No more. No more. I submit there is no single serving European head of government today who is motivated by that kind of personal memory. And that, I think, is among the deepest problems of the European project. Now, I could, of course, mention many other challenges. Leadership was also mentioned. Climate change, environment, energy, education, nationalism, populism. We'd be here all night. And I take it... You don't want to be here all night. So I turn to the question of what is to be done. And my basic argument here is that if we merely managed to defend the levels of prosperity, security, and liberty in diversity that we have achieved in the European Union today and to extend them to some other countries by enlargement and a neighborhood policy. That would be a very great achievement. But we are on the defensive. 
in a way we did not feel ourselves to be in the 1990s because of the challenges I have outlined. And in the immortal words of the prince in De Lampedusa's The Leopard, things must change in order that they should remain the same. So what is to be done? Let me turn to a few thoughts on each of these five. First of all, I just want to underline what was already said by the Chancellor and others in the panel. If it is true that there are less and less purely domestic issues which do not have an external dimension, and if it is also true that Europe's relative power in the world has diminished, is diminishing, and will continue to diminish, so that even the largest European country will, in a matter of years, be a dwarf in a world of existing and emerging giants, then we too have to be a giant to defend and promote our own interests. And that means a European foreign policy, or more accurately, an external policy of the European Union. Because actually a lot of what we're talking about is stuff we're doing with other parts of Europe or countries like Russia and Turkey or the Maghreb where Europe does not so much end as merely fade away. And we are doing extremely badly in developing a European foreign policy that has already been touched on. There is the agenda of enlargement, which has almost stalled. I think of the Balkans, of Turkey, beyond that of Ukraine and Belarus. There is the crying need to give an imaginative strategic response to the extraordinary events happening just across the Mediterranean in the Middle East and North Africa. Events which, in a way, even more startling than what happened in 1989, because with many less precedents. Um, our response so far has been unbelievably feeble. We do not have a southern neighborhood policy. We have something called a neighborhood policy on paper, but it does not exist. Our eastern neighborhood policy exists to some extent, but only because somewhere down the line there may be the prospect of membership in the European Union. But the question we have to face is, if you're not going to offer membership to Morocco or Algeria, let alone Egypt, what's the deal? What is the offer? Um, we have, of course, to look to our relations with the great powers like China, Russia, and the United States. By the way, I always find it very interesting that the view of the European Union from Beijing, Moscow, and Washington is actually remarkably similar, despite the great differences between those countries. If you talk to people privately in Washington, Beijing, or Moscow, they all see the European Union as weak, divided, and hypocritical. We need to develop some military capacity. We need, I believe, a European foundation for democracy to at least make the proposition, the offer, which, as we have seen, many young Arabs will respond to, and I think young Chinese, that the values of the European Enlightenment are, in principle, universal values. How do we go about this? There are, I think, three crucial steps to getting a European foreign policy. The first is the machinery, the treaties and the machinery in Brussels, which we just started talking about, the External Action Service, which is 
very slowly being built, very bureaucratically being built, for this is Brussels, but it is being built. Um, there was some discussion at the panel about the personalities involved. Um, I, I, I make absolutely no comment upon this, um, uh, but I would just uh, tell you of one letter which I saw in one leading European newspaper uh, uh, shortly after the appointment of Hermann van Rompuy as uh, uh, chair of the European Council and Cathy Ashton as high representative, which said very unkindly um, that the European Union would have more impact in the world if it were represented by Tintin and Mrs. Tiggywinkle. <laughs> but this is, I'm sure, extremely unfair. But the crucial point is the one the Chancellor made, which is that with the best high rep in the world, you cannot have an effective European foreign policy unless you have what I call strategic coalitions of the willing and able member states, which must necessarily include, or at least not have against you, France, Germany, and Britain, but also others and well. When you have a strategic coalition of the willing and able, you've got a sporting chance of having a foreign policy on a particular issue, Ukraine, Belarus. If you don't, you don't. And that's what we saw in Libya. I mean, you, you can, we can disagree about the rights or wrongs of no-fly zone and intervention, but what's for sure is that it is a terrible day for a Europe supposedly in the first year of its new common foreign policy, when the representative of Germany votes at the UN Security Council with Brazil, Russia, India, and China, the BRICS, against France and Britain. Whatever you think of the merits of the case, that's a pretty terrible day for European foreign policy. But one reason, and this is the third thing you need, one reason that happened, is that we do not have a European strategic culture, we do not have a European public opinion or public sphere, we virtually have no European media, except at a very elite level, the FT, the Economist, and so on. We have national media, national debates, national politics, and the German decision, as we all know, was dictated very much by national and even regional politics. So that machinery and treaties in Brussels, strategic coalitions of the willing and able, but also, crucially, a strategic culture in Europe, a European public opinion. Then we would get it. Turning to the issue of Muslims, I've just been a member of a working group chaired by Joschka Fischer for the Council of Europe, which has just reported on this issue. And what we say is the challenge is to combine diversity and freedom through a kind of civic liberal integration. What does this mean? It means equal liberty under law. It means that as many as possible of the people who live in a European country should be citizens of those countries, have equal rights, but also equal duties of citizens. And to do that, they need to speak the language and know the history and the political system and the legal system. But they don't have to change their identity, their culture, their religion to renounce their history. What does that mean? We talk in the United States of hyphenated Americans, you know, Polish Americans, Italian Americans, Vietnamese Americans. We need hyphenated Europeans. 
We need to be comfortable with the identities of hyphenated Europeans, where you can be Moroccan, Spanish, Algerian, French, Turkish, German, or in the British case, Asian, British, which is a bit of a stretch. Um, that, I think, is the key to a civic liberal integration. Very clear, rigorous standards of equal liberty under one law, equal rights and duties of citizens, but then in identity terms, in cultural terms, hyphenated Europeans, and for this to be promoted in education, in the media, and, of course, in the labor market. On the socioeconomic front, um, I will leave that to others except to say one thing, that we talk so much in Europe about the knowledge economy, quite rightly, but we sometimes talk about it as if it's our special preserve. By the way, in the United States, people talk about it as if it's the United States Special Reserve, that great capacity for innovation which is going to make up for all the other terrible burdens that America is bearing. Why do we think that young Chinese and young Indians are not capable of great innovation and entrepreneurship and skills of a knowledge economy? I see very little evidence to support that proposition, so we have to look to our laurels and do that, of course, very much at Oxford. Turning to the Eurozone, again, I want to concentrate just on one aspect of the one I mentioned, the aspect of Germany. And as I said, once again, I think in many ways the central European question, the German question, has become a central European question. I wrote a book about 20 years ago about the history of German foreign policy in the period up to unification. Uh, it was called In Europe's Name. And I argued that the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany, had had an exceptional commitment to European integration for two reasons. Because it really wanted to, after the shame and humiliation of Nazism, but also because it really had to. Because only by rehabilitating itself in the European community, only by winning the support of its European neighbors, could it command their assent to the great national goal of German unification. Mission accomplished on the 3rd of October 1990. The question was, what now? Will that exceptional commitment remain, or will Germany become what we rather laughingly call a normal nation-state, like France or even Britain, one that rather calmly looks to its own national interests. That question has now been answered. Germany has become a normal nation-state, uh, if we can describe France or Britain as normal. It's a second France, only slightly less so. That's to say, without the sense that you need to play a role in the world. The foreign policy ideal for most Germans is still greater Switzerland, and that's also part of the Libya story. It's a country which is dynamically opening up new markets more than any other European, large European country. I think I'm right in saying that 60% of EU exports to China come from Germany. I think that figure's right. Linda will correct me if it's wrong. Uh, 
opening up precisely those markets in Brazil, Russia, India, and China with which it voted on the Lydia Revolution. That is the German approach to these issues. And as for the Eurozone, you should have read the Bildzeitung, the German tabloids over the last year. They make the sun look like the lady magazine, (laughs) a genteel gentlewoman's magazine. The language was extraordinary. And these are pressures, despite the fact, as someone quite rightly pointed out, I think it was you, Chris, quite rightly pointed out, that the banks, notably German banks, especially the so-called Landesbanken, were co-responsible for the crisis by their irresponsible lending. This was not mentioned. I don't want to be too hard on the German position, but there is no question that Germany at the moment is absolutely not prepared to do what Helmut Kohl would have done or Helmut Schmidt would have done or Konrad Adenauer, go the extra kilometer to save the European project. And this is a question, ladies and gentlemen, which I and we, in a sense, cannot answer, but it is a question that I think we're entitled to pose to Germany and then wait anxiously for the answer. Finally, let me come to what I described as the deepest problem, namely the problem of success. Um, The problem of history. Um, If it is the case that personal memory can no longer be relied on to drive forward, to give dynamism to the European project, we have to look elsewhere. I think we have to look two places which together make up a narrative. Firstly, we have to do a new story, make a new story, tell a new story, which is about where we want Europe to go in the future in this world of giants, not simply about where it's coming from, but secondly, in the place of direct personal memory, we need indirect collective memory, that is to say, history. That is to say, we need to remind people that Europe was not ever thus. We need to remind the young Estonian that Europe was not ever thus and might quite easily not be thus. Again, incidentally, since some mention has been made of one T. Blair, St. John's, um, Tony Blair read law at St. John's, and he he was once heard to say that he, he wished he'd read history. I think that's quite a good point. I wish he'd read history. One or two... One or two mistakes might have been avoided. So there is a really important point here, I think. There is a really important point about uh, the need for a common narrative which consists firstly in a deeper knowledge of where we're coming from, of that history, not a mythopoeic knowledge, not a knowledge done in the way most nations Uh, tell their own stories in the way Ernest Renan classically described in his famous uh, lecture at the Sorbonne in 1882, Qu'est-ce qu'une nation? Uh, He said, a nation is a community of shared memory and shared forgetting. Every French citizen has to have forgotten the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. Not in that mythopoeic way, uh, not in the, the way of shared forgetting and blaming it on your neighbors. This is quite difficult to do in a community of 27 member states, 27 countries, with very different histories, which have only recently, quite recently, come together. But it is, I think, what we have to do. And I think it is one of the most important things 
we have to do. Now, as I said, there are many other challenges I could have talked about, but I would submit to you that if we are successful in taking on just these fives in the way I've outlined, then we do have a chance of preserving and enhancing what we have achieved in Europe since 1945. We'll have a pretty good story to tell our grandchildren as we stand in front of the Sagrada Familia Church in Barcelona in 2030. Let's hope. Now, please, I'm not going to end by addressing the question what I think the chances are of us doing this, because I don't want to depress you at the end of a long day. So let me end somewhere else by just gently pointing out that in four of the five areas I have described, education, and particularly the role of universities, plays an important part in the formulation of European foreign policy a common analysis, strategic analysis of European interests and threats and instruments, something we try and do at Oxford in European studies, at Oxford in the network of the European, in civic liberal integration, it is crucial that people with minority and migrant backgrounds are seen in the highest positions in all our countries. And that only comes about if they can go to the best universities and come out to get those jobs on merit and not by affirmative action. The knowledge economy self-evidently comes back to universities and then, of course, history, not to mention languages, politics, economics. Where else if not in the university? On the Eurostar over, I was reading a nice little book by Alain Manc, the French intellectual, uh, called Un Petit Coin de Paradis, a little corner of paradise, which is Europe, by the way, uh, in case you were wondering. And he ends this book uh, by saying that the key to this all is really the revitalization of our universities. And he says, and the trouble is that the Americans have all the great universities, except, you guessed, for Oxford and Cambridge. That's Alain Monk speaking. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Oxford is um, sometimes suspected of of a certain degree of self-importance. But even for Oxford, it would be a slightly excessive degree of self-importance to suggest that the future of Europe depends on the future of the University of Oxford, which, of course, depends on the support of its alumni so that the future of Oxford depends on you. (laughs) I wouldn't want to push it quite that far, but I think we can quite realistically say that it depends to a significant degree on the work of universities and not least on the work of the University of Oxford, whether we will bequeath at least as good, if not a better Europe, to our grandchildren. Thank you very much.